You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey, folks. If you dig the Enormo Cast, if you like what you hear, if the Enormo Cast inspires you, makes you cry, makes you laugh, makes you want to punch someone in the eye, then do me a favor. Head over to EnormoCast.com and click on the Help Out tab and see what you can do to push the Enormo Cast to such great heights that it will tower over all other podcasts, like three L caps stacked on top of one another. Once again, take a moment and head over to normacast.com, click on the help out tab, and follow the instructions. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place outside of town. That's a big place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed playing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so, but we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And now, La Sportiva has joined the Enormo Nation as a premier sponsor. And of course... Don't forget Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com, enter Enormo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee and to help out the EnormoCast. Please support all of our great sponsors and let them know that you love them. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is October 1st, about 8 o'clock Mountain Daylight Time. Still Mountain Daylight Time, even though it feels like it's getting dark quite early here in Colorado. But the true darkness is not upon us yet. We've got another month. Anyway, this is episode 90, a conversation with Black Diamond CEO Peter Metcalf. But before we get to that, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors. Sportiva has been on board all summer long since the early spring. Been pumping out that Sportiva message. Hopefully it's been taking purchase in your ear hole. Anyway, the sponsors for the EnormaCast, I bring them on out of mutual respect. They like the show. I like their products. So please consider supporting Sportiva by checking out what they have. Great climbing shoes, as I've talked about many times this summer. Great mountaineering boots. They've got apparel. They've got skiing equipment. Go over to Sportiva.com. Check out what they have. Go to your nearest retailer. See if it's anything that you like. And please let them know that you appreciate the fact that they've come on board all summer long for the EnormaCast. And if you open your wallets, that's even better. Also, I want to remind you, I mentioned on the last show for the first time, that Peter Gilroy... Jewelry maker, artist, is uh, offering the EnormaCast listeners a discount. Go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out what he has. It's really cool stuff. Can't say that enough. Very cool climbing and climbing area and rock-inspired jewelry and accessories, belt buckles, hats, money clips. If you're one of those playa-type dudes that run a money clip, can't do it. I'm more like George Costanza. I like to keep a lot of stuff in there. Anyway, PeterWGilroy.com. Enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. And also, I want to remind you that you can head over to BelaySpecs.com and get a discount on those crazy funky glasses that make the world look upside down. But I have to get used to them. They make you a more attentive and therefore safer belayer and also 
reduce that ubiquitous sport climbing neck pain. So go over to belayspecs.com and enter enormocast at checkout to receive a discount on belay specs. Change your life. These things will. Guaranteed. Okay. Let's get to the interview because it's a long one. Peter Metcalf, CEO of Black Diamond, founder also of Black Diamond when it split off or reorganized or whatever. He tells the story. Came from Chenard, became Black Diamond right about the time I started climbing, actually. Some of my very first early climbing equipment still says Chenard on it. I have a pair of straight shaft X15 Chenard ice climbing axes for sale, actually. What the hell? If anybody wants those things, get in touch with me. Because you know I sure as hell ain't going to use them anymore. They do belong in a museum. They're very low-tech, although they were the shit in the day. But anyway, they still say Chenard on them. I started climbing in 89, which is right about the time that they were converting over to Black Diamond. So I'm interviewing the CEO of one of my main sponsors. Is this a case of the tail wagging the dog? Are my more cynical listeners already shut off the EnormaCast? Probably. Anyhow, you're going to have to decide that for yourself. But the deal is, is that Peter Metcalf is a true hardcore climber. He has an extensive Alaska resume, which we spend the bulk of the interview talking about. We do end up talking about the somewhat fabled, at least for my era, story of how Chenard became Black Diamond. And we ended up talking a little bit about conservation efforts that he has spearheaded, both as the CEO and personally. This guy met the uh, met the president this year. So he's up there fighting for our right to climb out there, to enjoy backcountry skiing, all those sorts of things. Anyway, I'm proud of this interview. It was really inspiring to talk to Peter. Great guy. And the fact that he uh, sat down with me and gave me a good hour, hour and a half of his time is pretty special because he's one of those guys, sort of a mover and shaker for whom time is an extremely valuable commodity, both his time as a businessman and his personal time. I think we crossed over between those two during the interview. So I hope you enjoy this. Listen carefully. See if you think it sounds like some sort of sales pitch. But really, I don't think you can help but be inspired by this guy's work ethic and his passion for the sport. Is it a sport? I don't think it's a sport. It's a lifestyle. It's a pursuit. It's a dreamscape in which we tread. Is that too much? Maybe so. All right, let's get to it. Conversation with Peter Metcalf. Or what are the high points of my life relative to climbing? Mm-hmm. And business is part of it. It's hard to sort of decouple climbing from friendship, from life, from business. I think we're probably pretty good. Um, cool. So we're rolling. And sitting with me today is uh, Peter Metcalf, who actually, I just asked him about his title at Black Diamond. So I'm going to have you give that to everybody, if you don't mind. Yeah, I know. My pleasure. I, I'm the CEO, president, founder, and uh, jack of all trades. Okay. Thanks for coming in, Peter. How are you doing? Great. Really enjoying the show. It's always great to, to get together with this industry that is so much comprised of friends, climbers, the tribe. It's very familiar, and it's, it's it's always wonderful to do this. It's the twice a year. It's showtime, and you get to present the efforts of the past year. Well, and we've been trying to do this actually for a little while, um, a couple few shows, and things have come up, 
and you're a very busy man. I mean, especially this time of year, which is why it's hard to do at these shows. It would probably be better to try, have tried to do it at another time. Um, but I totally appreciate that we're we're finally sitting down. So it's pretty cool. I'm very psyched to do this, and having listened to n- numerous podcasts of yours, Chris, it's it's really an honor to finally be joining this elite group of climbers. <laughs> Thanks, man. I don't know if the word honor has been uttered across the table like that before, so I appreciate that. But truly, I mean, you know, you're among uh, you're among some some pretty heavy hitters. So uh, even as recent as your good friend Jack Tackle, who was just on, and and uh, so yeah, no, like I said, it really is an honor. I mean, I climbing's been my life, and uh, but I don't put myself up at the level of climbing that many of the people are, in, as far as I'm concerned, that you've interviewed. So. Let's. I'd like to actually start with that. Um, you know, I think publicly at this point, the the company name Black Diamond and you are sort of synonymous. But um, I'd like to talk to you about about you as a climber because that's obviously where it began. And I think I want to use Alaska as sort of a of a point to go forward and back from instead of you know just starting you know whatever it was yeah. in the Boy Scouts or um, I'm just guessing that. But is that a pretty good guess? That's a very good guess. Yeah, because I know you're East Coast. Right. So that seems to be the path out there. Especially in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, and if it was before, it was like, you know, some sort of outing club. But yeah, um, but yeah Alaska figured prominently in sort of your early climbing. And you actually started going up to Alaska at a super early age. Yeah, I mean, I'm proud of that. I mean, I think even today, 40, 43 years later, the my first climb in Alaska remains the uh, a record for the youngest group of people to go do a n- technical new route on a major Alaskan peak. I was 17. My partner was 17. Two of us were 18. Never been to Alaska before, and we went and did the fifth overall ascent, first ascent of the southwest ridge of Mount Fairweather in the Alaska Coast Range. A phenomenal um, climb from a myriad of ways, from how we figured out how to do it, the drama getting up to it, how in some ways it was so historical relative to the first attempt at ascent by Washburn in the 30s, as well as just following in the, sort of the footsteps of what was at that point in time in the early 70s, the idea of apprenticeship. And again, I was from the East Coast learning how to climb from the AMC, meeting the, such people as Guy Waterman and the AMC old guard and learning about Boyd Everett and how he did expeditions and so there was there was a way there was a process there was an apprenticeship and getting to Alaska at some point in your career and doing something new and technical was what you had to do and so I wanted to waste no time getting on that so let me sort of position that in terms of if you're a kid uh you know coming up you you went you said the boy scouts you probably started rock climbing but you know when you're sort of dreaming up something like this like where is that coming from? Is that being handed down to you by these these older guys? Like, there's not really, you know, the rock and ice, the climbing magazine thing that's showing up in your in your mailbox once a month or anything like that. So, this idea, these ideas, are I mean, are they being handed down on high from from the greats or? You know, honestly, yeah. I mean, it was amazing about climbing then and even today. I mean, you know, last night we were listening to Tommy Caldwell talk. And he was this there, one of the bros over at Black Diamond. And so I started technical rock climbing in 1970. I was 14 years old. Uh, my scout leader brought me up to the Shawangunks because he was worried watching me on backpacking trips scramble on 
crags, I was probably going to kill myself, so I better learn some basic climbing technique to protect me. And those people who took me under their wing and anybody who would go on an AMC beginner rock climbing weekend, these people were, what I learned very quickly, very accomplished climbers who had already been climbing in New England, ice climbing, rock climbing in the Alps, and had some of them had been to Alaska, many had been to the Canadian Rockies. And there was AMC slideshows and things like this. And yeah, you know, this I just took to this thing. I found I didn't know I had a passion for it until my first weekend of rock climbing. I just thought this is really cool. Maybe I can only do three, two or three pull-ups, but I'm going to get strong. I'm 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 just in love with this. And very quickly within the doing this, I began to learn sort of what the whole regimen looked like, how you apprentice yourself, what the steps were. And so in the summer of, because of that, in the summer of 71, I inherited a little bit of money from an aunt who died because I was brought up in a pretty lower middle class family. And it was just enough money to take advantage of what I'd seen on TV that winter, Journey to the Outer Limits. And it was a story about Paul Petzl and Knowles. I watched this 45-minute TV show, and I had just gotten this money, and I just said to my parents, Check this thing out. This is awesome. It's a five-week mountaineering school on the Wind River Range. I got to go do this next next year. I'm not old enough, but they'll never know. I can fake my age <laughs> and go do this alpine guide course. And, and that was it. And began to, from Paul Petzl, guy who taught in that course, who came in to the Gannett Peak area. I started reading magazines now. I was 15. And I just read Tissack by Robbins. And who comes in for a week to teach us rock climbing? There's only two guys in my group who want to who have the energy, it's Don Peterson, who is, 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 if you don't know the story, this, I'm dating myself, but I mean, Don had been on the first ascent of Tisserac with Robbins. Right. If you ever read that story of Tisserac, it's one of the great pieces of climbing literature ever written in mm-hmm. ascent in 1971, the spring. Right. So this guy shows up to teach you course. Comes in to teach yeah. the climbing component yeah. of it, and there's just me and one other young kid who lied on his age, too. Everybody else is a little bit wasted. You know, it's early 70s, so the people in this course are cross between people who really want to be climbers and kind of hippie types. I mean, right. it was that era of being tree huggers and woodchucks and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we had five days with this guy learning how to lead, pounding pitons and bongs and um, mountaineering and kicking steps and chopping steps. And we did a new route in Gannett, 15 years old. And just where every night, you know, you get back to the glacial moraine and Don Peterson is sharing stories of right. climbing with Royal Robbins and Yvonne Chouinard. And, you know, our eyes are popping out of our head like, this is what we got to do. Mm-hmm. As soon as we could finish that five-week course, packed up our shit and hitchhiked from, you know, this is like uh, Willando, Wyoming, 1971, and hitchhiked up to the Tetons, had enough money to do one more day of climbing up there, hired this guy, Herb Swedland who did the first ascent of the black ice, so fast in his stories. And then we were ready to climb on our own and climb the Grand and ran into some other great climbers and just began the process of sort of working our way um, forward in climbing. You, you know, you, you, you've, you've talked to your parents or said, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and now you're a hitchhiking ground doing all sorts of climbing. You know, what was the attitude of, of uh, you know, what little Peter was up to out there in the West? And I think my, you know, I'm I'm very blessed. Though my parents had no passion for the out of doors, and probably for my father, it was squeezed out of him as an infantryman in World War II, okay. which I think happened to most people of his generation. He had an amazing quest for adventure, as did my mother. 
But what I will say, that quest for adventure or that appetite wasn't because they chose to. It was survival. My mom was a Jew in Germany before World War II and got here after the war. And my father was born and raised in China and left with nothing because of the Japanese bombing got so intense. And listening to their stories of life, I mean, life was an adventure every day just to get to the next day. And it was enthralling and inspiring. And Mm -hmm. so my parents were very liberal as far as, yeah, you got to get out there and explore the world and do these things. And we don't know much about this climbing thing. But it seems like you're pretty passionate about it, and if that's what you want to go do, and you're not going to, getting into trouble, <laughs> and you don't need money, you know, go do it. It's right. awesome. And my father became a great enthusiast and learned a lot about the sport, though he would never do it. He didn't have the ability. But overall, very supportive, other than <laughs> the one time he did take me to the gunks early on when I came back from Knowles and was just freaked by watching leading at that time. Right. Well, he should have been. Yes, he should have been. <laughs> I mean, when you just added at that time, I mean, that that's all that needs to be said. Like but leading climbs then was... I, I do have to share this one yeah. story. So, you know, at this point, I'm 15. And the mm-hmm. way I typically went climbing and had a climbing partner from junior high, we'd just take the bus to the to the subway, then hop on the subway because it's very cheap. Take the subways up to the GW Bridge, walk across the GW Bridge to the Palisade Thruway, and then unroll this sign we have, New Paltz, and go up there every weekend. And my father one time said, you know, I, you're hitchhiking a lot. You know, I'll, I'll drive you up there once and drove up. And we were, for those who climb at the gunks, <clears throat> we're climbing at, by the Uberfall by Rhododendron and Laurel. And this is, you know, before nuts, pitons, wearing Robin's boots. And I remember thinking there's a sort of a line between those two routes. I'd never tried it. There was no protection, but I should try it. What the hell? And so here's my father on the ground just watching this. And I, at this point, get out there high enough, further, far enough out from my protection that if I decked, I would hit the ground and probably hit my father. So he's watching this. And then I get this high, high, high step up. And I get my hand in this, what was it, like a dime hold. And as I try to step up on it, I got going to sewing machine leg. So my leg is just vibrating at like 100 times a second. My father's watching this, and I'm trying to do this move about to come flying to the deck. I get the move, and all the way home, my father just says, you're crazy. you got to place more protection. I get in this fight with him, not because he wasn't correct, that I hadn't done something stupid. But, you know, you're 15. you got to fight right, with your dad. Right, what right. the hell does he know? And then we get home. I have on my wall. I had just put up there a few months earlier this this is 1971 or 72, a picture of, I forgot who it was. It was an adult black and white poster of the traverse off of Texas Flake to Boot Flake or Boot Flake to Texas Flake, whatever it is. It's aid, right? Mm-hmm. I remember being there two years later. I think that's where the shot was taken. But my father pointed to this and goes, look at all that protection. That's what you need to do. Right. And I share that story because we had a big fight. He never took me climbing again, but he supported me. But what he would always say before I left for months on end would be watch your footing. And the most heartwarming story of all was when in 1980, when we were flying in to do the, the first Alpine ascent of the South Face of Hunter, we're out on, in Tuckheaton, we're out on still, it was the gravel. The tarmac wasn't being used, the gravel one way. There was one guy like in a hut there. My father, I had been in, I'd been coming in J Tree. I had been in Yosemite all spring. This is before internet and cell phones and all that. And I had given him a rough time and date that I thought I'd get to Alaska. I didn't stay in close communication. 
So I'm there with Athens and Randall, and we're throwing the last of our gear in the plane. The plane's starting to get gunned up, just slamming the door. <clears throat> and this FAA guy comes running out of this little hut, waving. And the pilot then slows the engine down, opens the door, and the guy says, is there a Peter Metcalf in that plane? I go, yeah, that's me. He goes, there's a phone call here from somebody who says it's really important he talked to you. And I run out. It's my father. And he goes, I just had to reach you. I haven't talked to you in two months, and I wanted to catch you before you flew in this big climb. And he goes, I love you, and just watch your footing. <laughs> oh, and it's just so, so endearing. That's awesome. I mean, what kind of trouble was it to try to get a phone call to that place? Like, it was amazing. I mean, I'm yeah. sure he spent all day at his office using his company's phones right, to, trying to figure out okay, yeah. where in Talkeetna, what's there, how do you, how do you reach amazing. somebody? I want, to get to that, uh, I want to get to that climb, but let me just circle back. So you're this rock climber. You're sort of getting the, the, the tentative blessing of, of your folks. Again, where do we get to? Where do we get to this? Uh, these trips to Alaska, then? Yeah. So climbing at the Gunks, you know, it was a small tribe then, and everybody you got to climb right next to your heroes. It was the old guard we still climbing there. You know, Fritz Wiesner and Hans Kraus were still pretty active. You had the current hard men, Jim McCarthy, Dick Williams, and then you had the up and coming guys like um, Wunsch and Bragg who were challenging the old guard. But you got to talk to everybody. And though at this point in time, I was now leading on my own and had my own partner, you'd just be able to at the restaurants and on the Uberfall talk to people. And because I'd gone on several of these AMC beginner climbing weekends, I got to know Guy Waterman, Ted and Evelyn Church, Julius Beattie. I mean, the people who were kind of the mountaineer hard people of the AMC at that time. And Guy Waterman, um, who we'd run into each other in the ice climbing a little bit, he said to me, you know, you're so passionate, enthusiastic. And we'd, we'd do some climbing. He goes, hey, you know, my son, Johnny Waterman, is trying to put together, make a little bit of money from putting together some climbing trips because he's out west. And he is hooked up with a guy named Leif Patterson, who's just another amazing climber who I'd heard of, Canadian, Norwegian. And this coming summer, they're looking to, you know, try to be able to be in the Canadian Rockies. They're coming back from Alaska. And if you could put together a small group of people, you know, I think the cost would be relatively modest. They would be happy to lead an expedition into um, Robeson, and you could do the Cane Face on Robeson. You could do some new routes on Whitehorn, Resplendent, whatever. Go do that. So anyway, I had a couple of climbing buddies my age and saved the money up from a lawn business, did that hitchhike up to Montreal, took the Trans-Canada train out to Mount Robeson Station. We actually got the guy to stop the train and pop out in the middle of nowhere. Next morning, met Leif and Johnny, and both of them had just come down from Alaska. So Leif had just done the the first alpine-style ascent of the west rib of the south face of McKinley with Alex Petulis, and I forgot who else. And Johnny had just done the first ascent of the east ridge of Huntington with Rocky Keeler, um, sort of the hard men of the age. So here we had a two-week trip packed into the Berg Lake, did the cane face. Johnny did the first alpine, first ice ascent of the cane face. It was, a, excuse me, of the north face. It had only been done once by Pat Callis, but nobody had done it with real water ice. We had the perfect conditions. And who did he do it with? Leif was well, not feeling good. I mean, we were happy to go do it and watch. But hiking in, another climber's partner had just twisted his ankle. So there at Berg Lake was a guy named Warren Blesser, 
who was one of the top climbers of the day. So he just joined us, hooked in with us. So here I am, just barely turning 16, with three of the top Alaskan mountaineers of the day, mm-hmm. Life Patterson, Warren Blesser, and, and Johnny Waterman, and my three buddies. So we got to do some amazing climbing and be, yeah, watch the gear, how we climbed. And it was all about ice climbing in the mountains, doing big routes. How do you do that? And by the time we were done, they said, it, after two weeks, you know, unexpected bivvies and things like that, you guys are totally ready for Alaska. You, you go up there. Right. And so that was the inspiration. So we got home that fall, me and my buddies, and started going to writing the American Alpine Club and going into the library, starting to get books. What's subjective in Alaska? And this is before the internet. Starting to read books and talking to people and started to develop some ideas and just serendipitously came across a book by Patty Sherman, The Cloud Walkers, about four amazing peaks in the Canadian Rock in Canada. Uh, St. Elias, Logan, Waddington, and Mount Fairweather, because the guy had done the second ascent. And did some more research and realized Bradford Washburn up in Boston had this amazing archives of aerial photos of Alaskan routes. So we looked at this and thought, you know, Fairweather, this is looking interesting. Then at the American Alpine Club Library, went back in on a Saturday or Sunday, found a book called Bradford on Mount Fairweather. He had tried the first descent in the 30s. Amazing story. So called him. And then Brad was Brad. You guys are 17. I wasn't that much older. I was at Harvard at 19 and went there. Come on up. And we started talking to him about what route we were thinking about. And, you know, Brad was full energy, quit doing whatever he's supposed to be doing. His director of the Museum of Science came out, spent two hours with us looking at photos, pulling them and talking about routes and saying, yeah, you guys should go do that route. That's awesome. And what was amazing was about that is in the and when we went to do that route, we approached that mount, that mountain and that climb in almost the exact same way he did in the 1930s with the, almost the same kind of gear. Things had not changed that much. But what was amazing about it also was I applied at that time for a, a Boyd Everett grant, you know, for juniors getting into mountaineering. Mm-hmm. We were told we were going to get it, and uh, most likely, but it went into the Alpine Club. And sometime that winter, I get a call from Fred Becky. And Fred Becky says, hey, I hear you, you and some other kids your age are going to go into Mount Fairweather. That's kind of a big goal, and you're going to try the Southwest Ridge and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, wow, Fred Becky, yeah, well, it's amazing talking to you. And by the way, I forgot to say, I had run into him after after uh, the previous summer after climbing on ropes and all. Me and my buddies all hitchhiked down to the Bugaboos and hitched in on the, the forest road lumber road into the bugs and climbing the bugs for a week and as we, just as the last days we're leaving we're down at Moser's place out of the hills comes walking Fred Becky and another guy who'd just been somewhere in I don't know some other area and got to meet him um, but anyway Fred tries to persuade us not to go and I finally said well we're going to go and Fred then says well I'm going there with a bunch of other guys it's going to be Greg Markov Desan Jagurski uh, Jim Wickwire, we're going to go and do that route. So, you know, there's no point. And I said, oh, well, that's okay. I mean, we don't mind doing the second ascent. We won't even know about it. We don't care. We just want to feel like we're doing a first ascent. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it was clear he wanted to talk us out of it. And he said, we'll just go anyway, have a good time. And then I get a call <laughs> from Wickwire about this. I'm thinking, God, here is 
a bunch of 17-year-old kids who have never been to Alaska getting intimidated by right. the leading climbers <laughs> of the day. Don't, do, don't go there. <laughs> and I told them, like, hey, it's cool. You guys just do your thing when we get there in June. And they told, them, they told me that they would beat us to it anyway. I said, it's cool. When we get there, we won't see you and whatever. So anyway, the funny story is so we drive cross-country, get on the ferry boat in an old VW van to Prince Rupert, that was an epic. I learned how to drive a stick shift in Chicago at rush hour. Um, got there, and then instead of taking a boat in like like um, Bradford did, you fly into Latuya Bay. So it's it's a plane landing on the water. Mm-hmm. But when we get to the hangar's place, Ken Loken's pot in Juno, we've done all, everything was correspondence by mail. Walk in, introduce ourselves, and Ken's secretary is there, and she goes, "You're the team that are going to try the Southwest Ridge affair with her." That's us. And she goes, do your parents know you're here? <laughs> and anyway, so yeah. It's a reasonable yep, question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they know we're here. We unload our shit, and then we go into the hangar, and you can sleep in the hangar. We walk back there. There's Fred, uh, sorry, there's Dusan Jagurski, Greg Markov, and Jim Wickwire. We introduce ourselves, and say, why, why are you guys here? And said, we're waiting for Fred Becky. He's been caught in a snowstorm in the Bella Coola range. And I guess, and I said, wow, I guess we're going to fly in first, huh? <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, you guys go. But it was required to this. You guys being 17-year-old punks and us being like, like we're really good. You shamed us into trying something harder. So oh, right, huh? we're not going to do this. And we're going to try the first Alpine-style ascent and traverse of the whole range, which they ended up doing. But what's amazing about that climb was we did go in. We saw them on day one and day two because you have to ferry loads. You know, back then it was a big. It's a long approach from up the glaciers from the ocean, and we saw them on day one or two. Didn't seem the whole climb. Wondered if they made it. The weather was shitty, and then day twenty nine, we're getting out towards Latuya Bay, towards the ocean. We ran into them, packing out, and it was amazing. We missed each other in the summit by about twenty four hours. They did it, we did it, but it was just very cool. Thirty days later to come down and uh, run into those guys. So it was a. That's a very long-winded answer to your well, they, question. Well, they, I mean, they must have had to, like, you know, acknowledge you guys as, as no longer just a bunch of punk kids, too. Yeah, I think to a certain extent yeah. they recognized that, and that was very cool. And that did begin a long-time friendship with Fred, and I got to mm-hmm. very quickly thereafter spend quite a number of weekends climbing with him when I was then later on living in the valley he'd come up and pick me up and would go do routes in Tuolumne okay so let me kind of fast forward a little bit and we have to just because of the nature of this thing um uh you know there's probably 50 great stories that we're gonna just airlift over at this point in in the you mentioned just a minute ago that uh, 1980 the hunter ascent is that the 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 one yeah, I mean, if there's one climb that I am most proud of that took me and my two partners as close to the edge as one could possibly get without going over the edge, that's it. And I think, you know, that's ultimately the goal in climbing and alpinism is to find yourself to just push yourself to the maximum you very can because that's how you learn how good am I, what can I do, what can I achieve, and that was it. And, you know, I've climbed passionately since – I've done some good routes since, but not at that level of boldness because after you do one climb like that, you recognize there's a very fine line separating boldness from stupidity. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, 
Yeah. It's like some of it's luck. It's like, you know, a friend of the show and, and I'm sure, you know, Hayden Kennedy, but I'm sure he stole the line, but you know, he said, what, if you're going to be bold, you better be stupid or something, something like that. <laughs> it sort of fits that, that kind of mold as well. But, um, so tell me just a, a little bit about this climb. What yeah. made it what it was or what it's become in your life? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, first off, it's a big, it's a big route and it's not a, it's technically hard, but that's not what makes it so hard. It is, it's just an incredibly committing route where gear in and of itself is not going to make it easier because you're dealing with thousands of feet of this very rotten sort of honeycomb ice on these ribs because you're traversing a steep rib itself, working your way up along a ridge and often you're off the ridge because you can't be on the ridge traversing upward along these rotten honeycombs of ice then you're on these um this sort of double cornice ridge at times and it's the kind of thing where you know you're both chopping off cornices you're climbing very insecure honeycomb ice and it's just we recognized very early on we couldn't reverse it um but what made it so hard was that the weather was horrific very early on, we got committed and realized we couldn't reverse it. And the way we knew we weren't going to go down that way to begin with, but we didn't realize how early on we would get committed and realize here we are only a third of the way up. We still have to low and the whole thing is taking far longer than we thought. Um, we don't know what the difficulties are up ahead. And once we summit to the plateau, we got to get over the top and then we have to descend the West Ridge. And the West Ridge, as if people know, it's not technically super difficult but it is technical it is long and it's achievement just to get up that thing sure and so yeah. we were going to have to down climb that and so this was a a trip that i thought would take us six days um ended up taking us 13 to save weight and get the weight down we did not bring tents i was convinced we wouldn't find places always for tents and that you know we'd have to chop ledges at times which we did and if we could dig in, if it was a place you could set up a tent, well, then you could probably dig a snow cave, which sure. was true. But there was plenty of open bivouacs, plenty of caves that were really, really hard to dig and were tiny. Who who were your partners on this? Uh, Glenn Randall, who was my partner in many other climbs, and Pete Athens, who okay. was had been my partner the previous summer in the Alps. And I should say that I had been there two years earlier after doing a couple of successful climbs in Alaska and had tried it and failed with a different team. And it was the year that Michael Kennedy and Jeff and George Lowe had done the first ascent of both the triangular face on Hunter and the Infinite Spur. So we went in to do our thing. They went to do theirs. They were older and better climbers than we were. We failed for a variety of reasons. When we got out and hung out in Talkeetna for a while, pissed, angry, as you might, feel, might understand after investing a winter and money and time to get to something and fail as miserably as we did and then come out and then those guys are out a few days later and hear what they did and at that moment i said we will be back but i recognized that i would need a different team i would need a set of skills i didn't realize i didn't possess and i would get those and then for the next two winters did a hell of a lot of ice climbing and spent the next two summers in the alps with pete with my buddy charlie fowler um, and other folks really wanting to do the big roots, uh, the north faces of of the Alps in alpine style quickly because I had been doing more expeditionary style climbing in Alaska before that on, on after Fork or excuse me, after um, um, Fairweather it was on McKinley. 
And then, you know, ice climbs in New England, but that just wasn't the same thing. I needed to do longer ice climbs in the West, and I needed to have two good seasons in the Alps under my belt. So what was it about this route that, like, uh, I mean, you, you guys ended up being up there for way longer than you thought, so I assume you ran out of food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and so it just became some sort of grueling nightmare. I mean, what are we talking about in terms of, like, pushing, you know, you said like going right up to the edge? So first off, let me when I say this, people are going to wonder like, what's the, um, what was the addiction? What, what, why were you so monomaniacal about this route? And you know, my first trip to the Talkeetna was in 1975 to do a new route in McKinley, which we did do expeditionary style, capsule style, 45 days. But as you know, you don't get flown in immediately. And when you're in Talkeetna and you just walk down to sit in a river and you look at the Alaska Range, you see on your there is. McKinley, Hunter, and Fork on the left. There's three big peaks and then the rest of things. And the middle peak is Hunter. In the middle of the middle peak, you're looking right at the south face. And there rises a line that was unclimbed, which is the south rib of the south face. I mean, it's the Walker Spur that you see from the mirror glass. And at that moment, I just thought, i got to find out about that route. And and if it's not climbed, i gotta, I got to do it. That's, that was got possessed in 75 and so that's why I had to keep going back. And But what it was was that it's just long. I mean, comparing it to the Alps, you think, okay, what's 7,000 vertical feet? It's just not that much. But on a route that in Alaska, things are just bigger because you're, you're not dealing with a nice, beautiful ice face just flying up in, into the clouds. You're dealing with um, a, first a glacier approach, but you're dealing with rotten snow. You're dealing with these fluted ridges. You're dealing with double corniced, uh, double cornices on steep ridges. And then we had good, solid, you know, direct aid climbing. Uh, the ridge, when you get on it, at times it's exceedingly steep, and at other times it was lower angle than we realized, which didn't make it fast. If you got a double cornice and you're doing it all cheval and having to take your ice axe or a shovel and try to chop these cornices off. And using your your crampons like you're spurring a bronco, it is just time consuming. It's unprotected, and as I said, the weather was just horrific at that time when we were on that route. Chenard and Ridgeway were trying to do the south face of McKinley. All sorts of people were on the range, and nobody got up anything. And the only reason we got up at this thing was we either got up it or we died. Right. And the weather was the worst weather I have seen in my life. I mean, it would be weather that you just wouldn't want to climb in unless you absolutely had to, but we didn't have the food. We had six days worth of food. We ran out of it. Um, and then the question was fuel to melt enough water to keep going, and that we knew wasn't going to last. And then, you know, gear back then was not what it is today. You know, people feel like gear can always be better, for sure. That's what we do with BD. But, you know, you're climbing a long route, 13 days. You're on a lot of rock with your crampons and your tools, and by the time we were getting towards the end of the route before we got up to the plateau, there's still a lot of hard climbing. And on one, you know, gears breaking out and you break, getting holes in your gloves. And on one of the last leads up to the summit plateau, some steep ice, Glenn Randall's leading it. He yells, the weather's horrific. He yells down that, hey, God, my crampon just broke, but I'm going to strap it back on here. I'm going to hang from a tool. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I feel like I'm going to freaking freeze to death. And I just tell Pete, look, keep him on belay. Just run the rope out on me. I feel good. 
whatever with climbing, I'll, I'll get by and I can help Glenn. So we have two ropes. So I, I lead out, come to Glenn and go, Glenn, what's going on? I broke my cramp on. I'm trying to strap it on here. I'm okay. I'm just about done. I go, look, I'm just going to lead out this pitch and get up. I think we're close. And anyway, you know, I almost did myself in trying to, it was the last pitch, but the steep and the summit plateau was all cornice and trying to chop through the cornices to get up. But the reason I'm sharing that is, so Glenn had a broken crampon that he duct taped together. His tool was had a break in it. But during that, he also got severe frostbite. Right. And he ended up losing a couple of fingers. And I also, we all got pretty bad frostbite. We In the end, we all had to check ourselves into the hospital for a couple of days. Pete and I were, didn't lose anything. Glenn lost the tips of several fingers. But at that point in time, there's still a lot of climbing to get off of it. His, you know, we wake up in the morning. We dug a snow cave that night, didn't know what had happened. And in the morning, as it gets light and the storm's abating, and we go, okay, I think we can traverse this plateau. Glenn pulls off his gloves and goes, guys, I need help. I mean, you look at his fingers, and they're just giant wards of these black and blue blisters. And you realize right. he can't even put his climbing harness on, let right. alone hold a tool. Uh, so that we recognize that's going to take a little bit more time here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Like, I mean, I just, you're very matter of fact. It's just like, yes, we have realized this is going to take some more time. I mean, like, obviously you have that in you to, to, to be, you know, to have that functioning at that level. I mean, did yeah, you I, ever, I, did you guys ever feel panic? Did you ever feel, or was it just like, we're going to slowly bang our heads against this thing until our Either our skulls crack or the wall cracks, you know. Yeah, when I when I went to that climb because I'd been there once and I had said well, I'm going to do that route. I'd spent the previous springs in the valley climbing as hard as I'd ever had. I had trained physically, mountaineering wise, running, pull ups, climbing in the valley, getting my rock climbing done, you know, my ice climbing with this group of guys as good as it could be. We were never in better shape mentally, physically than I was at that moment. And, you know, my my mom died a couple of years ago. My father died a long time ago, but I was cleaning out the house, and I found a letter that my father had saved. It was just in a box that I had written to to my parents just before leaving, where I just said, you know, I just want you to know I recognize, and I had several friends that had died, and they had been involved with that. The, this climb is something, the odds of dying are pretty reasonable. But I want you to know that this means the world to me, and if I die on this thing, it is okay. I'm going to die doing absolutely what I want to do. I'm where I want to be, and it's the place to do it. Not that I want to, but right. it's okay. I just share that with you to show you where my head was at. Right. So we started this thing. I did feel like I was kind of, of a man possessed, but very. I had done enough climbing with people to understand I had to be very concerned about my partners. Mm-hmm. Glenn was super strong, had done some new routes in Alaska before, and Pete had been my partner in the Alps, so we'd done some great stuff there. First time in Alaska. But it's a little nerve-wracking, and it took you know some effort to make sure that he understood it was okay, we're all all's good. And I realized, though, in hindsight, you know some of the questions and how we answered them were delusional because early on, Pete just said, "Are we moving quick enough on this route?" And I looked at him and said, "Pete, I'll tell you something. Nobody could move faster than we're moving now. We're moving over this terrain as well as anybody could." Right. And I, wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> the answer and, would have should have just been no. And the answer was like <laughs> no, but <laughs> but we don't have any other choice. Well, no. At that point, we had plenty yeah. of choice. Oh, okay. Oh, I got gotcha. um, It was right, actually down. a yeah. couple of days, two days later, right. where we had climbed through the night. We had climbed this rock, this rock band. We could have gotten off the rock band, 
but <clears throat> it was climbing up in the storm through these fluted ridges of vi- you know near vertical ice traversing having these heinous belays i remember getting to one of these belays where i got to glen and just stumping on this cornice after cresting the ridge the whole thing shook and thinking glenn i just got to get off of this thing this thing feels like it's going to go and i'm going to go with it i get off of this thing try to get a picket in and let's keep moving but um that morning that night we climbed like through the storm until about three in the morning until we finally found a place where the angle eased off we could dig a cave we dug the cave a little hole got into it relief to get out of the storm next morning started to clear we crawled out and just said let's we got to rest a couple of hours here before we move on and let's assess the situation and at that moment we realized we were not going to reverse this we looked up we could see how much we had to go and at that point we just said we got to let's cut our rations by a third and talked about what was ahead and the point i made to the team was that look we don't have a choice now we're committed to this thing in some ways it's good because we're not going to waste any more mental energy which we had been doing. But how, can we get off this? How do we get down? Do we have enough anchors? Can you look down? How would we do this? And you know how much energy you waste? I mean, mentally on that. And at this point, it was like, we can quit thinking about that option because it's not an option. And there's something incredibly liberating about that. And some of your fear of, of whether you should go on, it was all gone because you knew you only had one choice. And so there was something about that actually, rather than being intimidating, was liberating. And also the other aspect is I said to the guys was that, look, we have done some of the hardest climbing the three of us have ever done in our lives in the worst weather that we've ever climbed in. What could be harder ahead? And we just did it. Right. So if we just look at this as we're going to take it a day at a time. We've just cut our rations dramatically. You know you can climb without food for a long time. What could be worse? So let's take it a day at a time, assess the situation each evening, but there's nothing ahead that's going to be any worse than that's been behind us. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the attitude. Right. Well, And we got to climb each day. We cannot right. not climb. Right. We don't have an option not to climb. Right. And we got we to gotta look at each other. And let's really be honest with one another because each of us are better at different types of climbing. And each of us are going to have moments of doubt. Let's be honest and talk about that. And if you don't feel like doing your couple of pitches of leading, say it. and Because somebody here is going to be strong enough to, to do it. And let's really just be open. And when you're not feeling strong, be honest with each other. And somebody's going to be strong and take the lead. And that's how we really worked. And it was just being absolutely honest with one another and absolutely committed to one another that we're going to look after each other. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because, uh, again, when I was doing research, I actually did research, which is unusual for me. <laughs> but, um, but the important thing is that, you know, this this figures prominently in a lot of things I read about you, about moving into business, which we do need to get to pretty quick here. But um, have you, did you guys have any sort of like post, you know, climb where you sort of assessed how those guys felt about this climb or, or have you remained in contact to know if it figures in their lives in a way that it figures in yours? Both of these guys remain very good friends. And I think after you go through an experience like this, it's like being in a super intense SEAL team or I mean, mm-hmm. I've never been in the military, but I, I think mo- if the listeners have been through something like this, you understand you're friends for life. Nothing will ever separate you. And especially um, with Glenn, who uh, there were periods, longer periods of time where I didn't see him because he, he quit climbing for a while. But I can still get together with both these guys 
and even if we have not been together for a number of years, we go for a climbing weekend or even for a run up Green Mountain or something, it's like within minutes it was like we haven't been separated more than a day or two. We're really close. And relative to how each of us look back at this climb, you know, Glenn wrote a book on it. I wrote some articles on it. Pete has. And we've all shared that with one another. And I think both our memories of the climb and how it transpired and what it what it meant to each of us is all very similar. That hasn't changed. The impact it had on each of our lives, I think that is a bit different. I mean, Glenn continued to climb in Alaska for a few more. I mean, we, we went and did a new route on the north side of, the, of Forker. We did other routes together. And then he, for a variety of reasons, moved away from climbing mm-hmm. um, like that. Pete, that was the catalyst for his career. And, you know, Pete's middle name is Everest. He's probably climbed Everest more than anybody, has done some amazing stuff, and is still out going to the Himalaya, climbing at a very high level. But I think if you ask him, this was, may still be one of the most meaningful, challenging mm-hmm. routes of his life. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all that. I want to, I kind of like, when you even before when you were talking about all these different things and leading up to this climb, I, I just scribbled down funding. And that's always a curious thing. And so I have a question about, A, how you were sort of funding that lifestyle at that point, and then um, you know how you ended up hooking up and working uh, for Chenard to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, great stories. And just like how I got to Alaska was based upon the the influence of those who, who were the elder members of the tribe who had quickly become sort of my heroes. You know, the whole idea of being a dirtbag and leading a life where you everything was about how long could I climb and how little could I work. I got that real easy. And coming up from a sort of a lower middle class existence, knew how to be pretty frugal. My parents, as I shared earlier, uh, had shown me and talked a lot about how you don't need much in life to have a great a great time. So I was a very frugal dude. And how I made money was a combination of, I had a lawn business in high school. So it's the early part of my career before I left home. And then in the summers um, or falls and winters during the time where I was kind of done with college, and I say kind of because it took me seven years to get through college. I'd go a year, take a year off. But I spent two winters throwing chain on a Wildcat drilling rig in the really the Red Desert area of Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah, uh, Echo Canyon, Wamsutter, Bags, Red Desert, Kemmerer, those areas. And it was, you know, I did it with fellow climbers. And at that point in time, you know, the draft had ended, so it was our way to do our patriotic duty. You know, country needed oil, and we'd make a lot of money. And it was it was a way to make a, a, a amazing amount of money in very short order in four months of working as a uh, on a drilling rig, if you didn't blow it and toot it like y- your other roughnecks, you'd save most of it and you could take off and climb the rest of the year. So it was primarily that. I did do a winter of commission sales work, and uh, that was kind of fun in Boulder. Boulder's a fun place to winter. Yeah. And then I was I did a couple of spring, uh, early summer seasons after Alaska, working Outward Bound, teaching Outward Bound courses at a time where a lot of my climbing buddies like Pete Athens, Steve Matus, um, and others were doing that in the South San Juans of Colorado. I didn't have a car. didn't get a car until Yvonne hired me. Uh, and I said, okay, I can buy a car because that was just too much of an expense. Slept where I could, lived with whom I could, would rent places, and uh, could live very, very frugally, and my life could fit into one haul sack. Right. 
So you just finished there with Chenard. Um, so how did that transpire and, and end up? Because that, you know, obviously it was a, another path that, that yeah. you know, led to who you are today as well. So, you know, climbing remains incredibly important to me. And living this dirtbag climbing life with never having any money, it's okay, um, especially as long as you get up stuff. But 1981 was a pretty tough year in that me and Pete, Athens was my primary climbing buddy for that year. And we went early season to Peru and between Giardia and other shit, we didn't get up anything big. And we got up some stuff, but spent more time being sick than getting up stuff. Came back, did some decent rock climbing, then we both went working for Outward Bound. And then we took off for Europe for the fall. And the weather was absolutely horrific. We had no money, and Europe is not cheap. And trying to crash illegally in Europe, I mean, you're sleeping in weird places. And when it came fall and I came back to the States, I just thought, I started thinking of Fred Becky, honestly, because I'd been climbing that some that year with Fred. And I admire Fred, but I just thought, I don't want to end up quite like Fred. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was both an inspiration and where I didn't want to go. And mm-hmm. I thought, what do I know? I know guiding, but at that time in America, you could not make it. And Outward Bound was not a career. And, you know, Glenn was getting to be a writer and a photographer. Pete was trying to, th- he was, was still thinking about guiding or Outward Bound. He took off for Scotland. And I thought at this point in time, look, I am pretty entrepreneurial. I love the community. I think I'm reasonably smart and resourceful. There is this career I'm hearing about called being a rep. And this is, you know, in 1981, yeah, 81, when Patagonia was about a million dollars and North Face was just getting going and climbers were starting to get hired to twill around in their cars and, quote, sell stuff. And I figured, well... I sold suits for a winter in, on commission. I can sell, and I know this industry. So I started writing letters that winter when I got back. I think I wintered in Boulder and um, started writing letters to people I knew about in the industry because I'd, I'd hustled a lot of gear for in exchange for photography and things like that. And one of the people I started writing to was Patagonia Chenard, and they're saying, you know, I know some people you hired as reps. I'd love to become a rep. And actually started some communication on that, but because I didn't have any money and where they wanted to interview me, didn't ever work out. Um, I never could make an appointment, which wasn't very good. What happened then was in spring of 82, um, I had a good spring in the valley. My climbing started taking off, went to Alaska, got up a bunch of stuff. And, you know, when things are good, being a climbing bum is awesome. And so I just thought, you know what? I think maybe being climbing was okay, <laughs> and I had these outward bound contracts. So we took off to Alaska and got back to Boulder. Just got back from Alaska, did some great routes in Alaska. It was just flying high. I had my contracts with outward bound, but there was a letter waiting for me. And I opened the letter, and it was from the general manager of Patagonia, Chris McDivitt. And what she said to me was, "Hey, you know, we've been co- corresponding with you for about a year about a rep job with Patagonia." You'd never made any of the interviews. I mean, I would tell them I couldn't get there. She goes, this is the last letter you're ever going to get from us. But she said that we just split Chenard equipment up from Patagonia. Patagonia is a million and a half dollars. Chenard equipment's $900,000. Yvonne said he was going to run it. He's not running it. And he said that he wants me to go find somebody who is a climber first and foremost with who might be able to be his general manager, run it for him. He'll train you. And, you know, your resume, I was looking at it, and it's unusual, but Yvonne wants to hire a climber. You interested? And I thought, oh, my God, if there is one thing I'm interested in, it is that. Picked up the phone, called Chris. First, she goes, who is this? 
Christmas day. You know, luckily I had a friend with a house oh, okay, cool. and a phone. And I said, okay, you know, this, yeah, I did leave the two bucks, which was a lot of money. Made the call and she said, hey, Yvonne's going to be back in, he's not around. You need to talk to him. It's his hire. It's not my hire. Call back next Monday and uh, talk to him. And I thought, okay, I'm serious about this. So I had a lot of friends in Boulder, at Low Alpine Systems, and the companies knew Gary Neptune, knew P- you know, and the industry is small. I talked to all these people like a maniac, took them all out for beers. Tell me about the industry. Tell me about your own equipment. Tell me about these businesses. What's good? What's bad? And with that information, sat down one night, borrowed a typewriter, and wrote a letter to Yvonne and said, here's why you should hire me. Here's what's wrong with your company. Here's what's right. Here's what the opportunities are. You should hire me. Sent that to him, FedEx. Ten bucks, first time I'd ever used FedEx in my life, and so when I called him, he said, "Hey, introduce myself," and he said, "That's a damn good letter. Really want to talk about it." We spent about an hour talking about it, and he said, "We need to meet face to face." And he said, "When can you get to Ventura?" I said, ah, "I don't own a car, and that's hard." And I said, "You know, more importantly, I got to leave here because I got these contracts with Outward Bound. I can't break them, um, and I need the money." So we talked a little bit about him. He said, okay, what dates are you free? I said, well, I've got five days between two of my courses in July. And he goes, that's good because he goes, I'm going to be teaching an ice climbing class in the north face of the Grand Teton right during your break. Find somebody, find a way, you're resourceful, get up to this, the Tetons, help teach this class, come up to Surprise Lake, and that would be the interview. And we'll talk. And we'll spend a day at my house afterwards, and I'll tell you whether or not you get the job. So one of my buddies at Outward Bound, had a car, told him I paid the gas, let's go up to the Tetons, you can go climbing. I'll walk up to uh, Amphitheater Lake, hang out with Yvonne, and then we'll go back together. So anyway, did the, the class with Yvonne for two days, went down to his house for a day. And at the end of these three days, we kind of hit it off. He scribbled on a piece of paper, something, handed it to me. I looked at it, and it was a dress in Munich. I said, what's that? He goes, that's the name of the guy we just hired to be the distributor in Europe for Chernot Equipment in Patagonia, Hans Martin Getz. Be at that date, that place, on September 7th. I'll refund your airline ticket when you get there. That's where I'll be. You're hired. Right and that's on. how I started. Awesome. Yeah. So how long was it before, quote-unquote, the shit hit the fan with Chenard, Patagonia, the lawsuits – I mean, we could spend an hour on that. If anybody needs the background, just look it up. But yeah. basically, Chapter 11, you know, things kind of split apart. It's sort of legal protection of assets is what I sort of understand. So how long were you there? And then let's just try to get a little, you know, bit about that backstory of the beginning of Black Diamond, which is 25 years old. Yeah, over year. 25 and a half. Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah we're going to celebrate our 26th in okay. December. So. 25 years under our belt. So in a nutshell, got there in 82, business was sub 900,000. And just by putting the energy and drive back into it that I had for climbing into the business the way Yvonne had had that in the 50s and the 1960s and the very early 70s before he began to shift his focus to apparel, I got the business to take off. Climbing was also growing and grew the business pretty quickly. You know, it took 25 years to get to 900,000 and then we got it to... About six million in by 1988, introducing the Camelots, mm-hmm. introducing re- um, replaceable pick ice tools. I mean, you just look at the line. I mean, it was through gear innovation that right. put forth. But with the expansion of climbing, we also had what was called the what I call the Big Bang that hit the outdoor industry, and that was the confluence of a bunch of mega forces that hit American society. 
biggest one was the revolution in tort law, the ability for you as an individual to sue a landowner if you got hurt, to sue Walmart if you slipped and fell on their floor because it was wet, um, your ability to sue a manufacturer because he didn't put warning on the top part of a ladder that not to step here or collapse, um, all those things. So football manufacture, football helmet manufacturers were going out of business, ladder manufacturers were going out of business, scuba manufacturers were going out of business. And there was no access fund. There was no winter wildlands. There was no even OIA at that time. The industry was a bit rogue. Climbing had been rogue. And so suddenly you had um, an explosion in the number of people climbing. They didn't have the education. They didn't have – or the apprenticeship. They didn't understand some of the risk. And we at Chernobyl Equipment got hit in rapid succession by five – Failure to warn, no product failure, failure to warn lawsuits, and a couple of them involved fatalities. And our insurance premiums went from uh, very modest but appropriate for a little company to through the roof, something that would bankrupt any company our size. But we had to pay it because there was a real fear that somebody would pierce the corporate veil and hit Patagonia, which at this point in time was $90 million. In addition to that, um, the insurance premium was not making the company very profitable. In addition to that, I had moved the company. My, I have a belief, I still do, that the golden days of climbing are at the windshield. They're not in the rearview mirror. And the key to retaining your passion for climbing is to keep embracing the new and the next generation and move it forward. And Yvonne, his golden years in climbing really were in the late 50s and 60s and early 70s with ice climbing. And he had a set of beliefs relative to the sport that put he and I at odds at this time relative to Camelot's um, sticky rubber, chalk, bolts, sport climbing, lycra. And, you know, so... It, he was he right said, about the last one. Yeah, I mean, I mean basically, is that, though he has a great passion for climbing, he just questioned where the sport at that moment was going and what I was doing to make the company relevant and make it a leader. And my belief has always been to be a leader tomorrow like you are today, you have to be something absolutely different because we are appealing to these dynamic sports that are giving birth to bouldering, gym climbing, sport climbing, mixed climbing. I mean, that's the beauty and the, the lure of climbing. It's constantly recreating itself, and that's why we're so addicted to it. Um, and that's what I was doing with the company. But so between that, the fact that now the company was not making any money, I was losing money, and it created a big risk for Patagonia. He said, you know, I'm done. And so with all of that, he put it into a Chapter 11 bankruptcy late in 88, early 89, and said to me, we're going to liquidate the assets. So I want you to put together a plan as quickly as you can to liquidate the assets so we minimize the losses. And I said, okay, and drove home, thought about it, and talked to my wife to get her support. And came back the next day with a $20,000 check, which was my life savings, and said to him, look, give me 90 days. I had no idea what I was talking about. And I will put together a brand new group of people, a company made up of employees to buy the assets at a bankruptcy and continue the legacy of Chanel Equipment. I'll make you proud. Everybody need 90 days to do it. And I'll, I'll figure it out. What because Chenard Equipment, I should say that this was late 88, early 89. Okay. And I should say that Chenard Equipment, it was a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company of Patagonia. I mean, it all looked like it was part of one thing. 
but it was illegally it was a separate company but we received our financing our hr our accounting our credit our it all of that came from patagonia so what i was running at chenard equipment was manufacturing design development engineering sales marketing and a tiny warehouse but none of these other things i didn't know about accounting finance and whatnot let alone buying assets out of bankruptcy or raising money or board of directors or any of this shit. Um, so 90 days proved to be nine months. And it really was the – what people don't understand because we never really talked about it was the likelihood of this thing happening was like one in a thousand. This turned out to be the business version of Mount Hunter. I mean it was monomaniacal, seven days a week for months – 15 hours a day trying to figure out how do you raise money? How do you create a, a, a business that can have all this stuff to buy? You know, we want to have 50 people or 40 some people the day this deal closed. If we succeeded, we had to deal with the liability. There's no point investing my life savings, taking a second out of my house, guaranteeing the deal. I was only going to be a 10% owner anyway. If we couldn't make this work, financially deal with the liability and not get sued out of existence. And this was at a time where nobody thought it was possible. You know, Yvonne's counsel to me at the time was if you get this thing started, keep it lean, keep it light, run it out of the back of your car like I did for my first couple of years because attorneys are going to get you. Um, it really was dark hours. I mean, people really wondered if bolting was going to be banned, if climbers could still go on the public lands or private lands to climb. And that's the reason I started the business with my peers at, at Chenard was that climbing meant everything to me. It had been my life. It defined who I was. It was my passion. It was everything. I'd spent the last six and a half, almost seven years of my life, you know, as reinvigorating Chenard equipment in the way that Yvonne had done at his time in a more modern way. And this, this felt like it was going to make a mockery of my life and what Chenard equipment meant to the world. And, I wanted to create something because there was no access fund that was going to belong to the climbing community. And as I shared with you in the group last night, it was the, the idea was, the vision was to create a company that was one with the sports we were to serve, absolutely indistinguishable from them. And the reason we were starting it was to make a difference for a fellow community of users of which I was one. It wasn't just to sell them something. But the way we're going to do that was, and it remains, was to bring forth the kind of really innovative, at times paradigm-changing gear that we have done throughout my time there and before, and to also champion the issues of great importance, which was access. You're privileged to climb where you want to climb, preserving these great places, education, supporting climbers going on trips, just being there to support the vibrancy of an activity that is more than a sport. It's a way of life. And to also celebrate, affirm, and inspire you to go do these things. Because at times you're giving up relationships, you're leaving your kids, you're sacrificing money, you're not partying because you're training, you're going away, you're doing things. And we all get an immense amount out of this, but at times you just need that inspiration, mm -hmm. that affirmation, and that celebration of what these activities are about. And that is why Black Diamond was created. I said to those employees who were joining me and those who were re friends who we recruited to put money into this because we took, put the hat out to everyone who was willing to invest, um, was that, you know, if we only get to $5 million in gross revenue, 
but we're sustainable and we're making a difference with product, with advocacy, with affirmation, ins inspiration, we will have succeeded. I don't know how big we'll get, but what I will promise you is at some point in time, you can get your money out too. Um, so it's not philanthropy, but we are doing something noble, something quixotic. And I don't know if we'll succeed, but it is a cool thing to do. So you, you know, you pull it off, you said in nine months, like I'm sure like a marathon at the end, you wandered into camp, you know, a shell of your former self. But so on the day that it's all done and, and it looks like it's going to happen, I mean, you know, was it's it funny. easy just to wake up and be like, all right, well, here we are. So the day, so the day, the day, so just the nature of these things, I won't go into why, but the day it closed, it was in um, around Thanksgiving, uh, 1989. But for a variety of reasons, because we had to remark all the product too, we couldn't open our doors and actually be in business and take phone calls and ship product until we remarked it. And there's some other things that had to happen with financing and money changing hands. So we, we actually closed the doors for probably about two weeks. Uh, everybody, we explained why, but it, the timing was perfect. I was mentally and in some ways physically exhausted. And we flew to Boulder that weekend because – that was the first climbing competition in America at um, in the Boulder Rec Center, and Jeff Lowe was a friend and a friend of my wife's. My wife had worked for Jeff at his climbing school back in the seventies and climbed with him, so we knew the Lowe's really well. And all you know, I had lived in Boulder, so my friends were all there. So the funny thing was, it was just I needed to de decompress, go to Boulder, th think about this, and I also knew I wanted to get the business out of Ventura as quickly as possible, which I can explain why later. But arrived in Boulder, went to the climbing competition. So, so many friends who wanted to know. The whole climbing community knew that this was nip and tuck. Was Shinar going down for good? Were you liquidating the assets? Or were you going to succeed at opening, starting this new business that you've been telling everybody about for nine months? And the first people we ran into, they were standing there, was Jeff and Janie Lowe, George, Greg Lowe and his wife, I think Paul Sibley and a few others. And I think it was Jeff who said, did you do it? And I, my wife is standing next to me, and I said, yeah. And he looked at me and said, congrats. And then George, Greg Lowe's, you know, they own Latok sure. and Lowe, and they already at this point in time, there are already challenges there. And George's wife, uh, sorry, Greg's wife, who knew my wife, looked at her and goes, with that southern accent she has, she goes, honey, I know the appropriate thing to say at this point in time is congratulations. And I'm so sorry that unfortunately I know better. You have my sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that, that was trying times. For and so guys you know, on the, the horizon for sure. And, and the you know, the first 18 months was another Mount Hunter for everyone. Right. I mean, we were so close to the edge in getting this thing running, working, and then we were losing our lease. You know, Patagonia did not want to extend the lease very long because they needed the space for Patagonia. I wanted to relocate the business to someplace where location would reside on the asset side of the balance sheet and be accretive to this vision of being one with the sports we serve, absolutely indistinguishable from it. I wanted to be in this vibrant community of climbing, mountaineering, and off-piece skiing because I saw what Ventura had done to Patagonia from the standpoint of becoming a surf company. You, you are affected and forged by your mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be among the tribe in the right yeah. environment. And that's what I learned about being there. You could not – Black Diamond could not become the company I envisioned being in Ventura. It had to be in the heart of one of the more vibrant mountain communities in America. And so I didn't know where that would be, but um, I knew it would be most in the mountains somewhere. 
and began the systematic search. But I didn't think we'd have to move as quickly as we had to, but the lease wouldn't be renewed. So we had barely a year to get the business stabilized and then move it. And a lot of people would say, well, how hard is it to move this little business? We're a manufacturing company. We had 150-ton presses. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had so much stuff. And we were super leveraged. I mean, I raised less than a million bucks. I raised from friends and family $875,000 and a hell of a lot of bank debt from a commercial finance company to get this business going. And it was employee-owned. I mean, I didn't own it. It was employees. It was retailers. It was distributors, suppliers. It was friends who believed in the vision and mission of the company. But we had to move early on. And no sooner finally picked a location, found our very eclectic digs. It was a bank repoed faux Scandinavian shopping village at the foot of the Wasatch Mountains that my board, I had a board made up of employees and some of the outside people thought I was absolutely out of my freaking mind to think that we should buy this dilapidated shopping village to put this manufacturing and climbing business. It worked out really well. My dream was to create an epicenter for climbing in Utah and the Wasatch and to make it a cross between Disneyland and Toyota City for climbers. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it, it was really tough. The first year and a half to two years, it was a nip and tuck sort of thing, whether or not we were going to eke it out. Mm -hmm. But it's that you know, tenacity that climbers have, and I talk about the whole team, to work for very little, very long hours, because they have this just undying commitment to this quixotic dream and this this optimism. You know, I think Galen Rawl said once, at the heart of the mountaineering experience lies optimistic expectation, the belief that tomorrow has got to be a better day than today. And that was kind of it. And at the end of about two years, it was clear we were going to make it, mm -hmm. that it was starting to come together, that people were embracing what we were doing. Um, payroll wasn't a nip and tuck event that was going to take my house from me. Right. And <laughs> yeah, you could start to breathe a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And it began to be... Um, what I uh, more anticipation than anxiety. I've always said all the big things in life need to have 51% anticipation, 49% anxiety if they're really big. If it's 60% you know, anxiety and 40% anticipation, that's not a good quotient. And the likelihood of getting killed is probably high. Right. <laughs> it kind of felt that way for the sure. first year and a half to two years. Well, we're going to, uh, we're right up against it here, but I really want to get to this conservation thing. And I know that's really important to you. So, you know, that sounded like it was in kind of the mission statement, uh, if you want to call it that, when you when you began. And it's, I mean, like you said, as the company got on better footing um, and as the years went by and it's become this profitable company, this like household name in terms of climbing, you've turned a lot of your efforts to these fights for conservation I'm nationwide, but specifically here in Utah, you've sort of gone toe to toe with some uh, with sort of the official stance here. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like uh, where that fits into the philosophy and, and where it fits into your uh, sort of personal uh, ambitions? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's this. In creating BD, as, you, as you, you acknowledged a moment ago, Chris, I said that we're here to make a difference in a fellow, for a fellow community of users, climbers, mountaineers, off-piece skiers. And we would advocate for and champion the issues of great importance. When I think about the climbing experience, it has really four fundamental components to it. One is climbing itself, right? It's physical and it's mental. 
And that's it, at the heart. That's what it's really about. That's the draw. But the second part of it is about the brotherhood of the rope, this idea of, of you and your partner working in collaboration, not competition. And like I talked about in Mount Hunter, just becoming amazingly wed to your partner. And that's, that's something very special about that. And it's the tribe too, this unbelievable group of people. And then another part of it is the adventure um, that at least certain types of climbing have. But the fourth part of it is the the absolutely sublime places we go to ply our craft. And, you know, listening to Tommy Caldwell talk last night about being up on the dawn wall is just what a magical place that is to wake up in the morning. And I think all of us have experienced that, whether you're doing a, a day route or a long route, you know, waking up on the diamond, um, waking up on a ledge on Mount Hunter and catching the dawn or seeing the sun never set. And you both develop a great appreciation for just a, a dime-sized edge and a, a bivy spot after 12 hours that's big enough to park the cheeks of your butt on you think is a freaking miracle. And you develop a both a sensitivity for the magnificence of the planet, of environments, of places. And I, I think there can't be very many climbers who don't believe, who are not spiritual, I'm not saying religious, but are not spiritual by being in these great places. And to me, it is, in, is incumbent upon Black Diamond and myself to champion the preservation and stewardship of these absolutely inspiring landscapes as it is to innovate amazing gear, as it is to fight for access, um, as it is to celebrate the sport itself. Because without place, we are so, we are so diminished if everything was to be trashed, drilled, mined, excavated, um, and turned into some kind of um, overly developed, exploited area. Let's think about how much that would be diminished. How beautiful would that be and not be? It would suck. It would be so diminishing. And I also think that as climbers, we have been around for comforting the wives or husbands of our partners who have been killed in the mountains, killed in an avalanche, killed in rockfall, however... We've had to give the eulogies. We've had to speak about what has made these people special. And I think that gives climbers especially an insight early on at a very young age into the humanity. Um, and part of discovering your humanity is not only how you take care of your fellow human being. Um, it's not only about discovering the beauty in nature and the beauty in art and the beauty of the world. It's fighting to keep it there so that the next generation will have it, so your children will have it, and that they will have the same exposure to the beauty of this planet and ecosystems and animals and wild places that we had. And it's just part of being a full human being, and I think that is what makes climbers so special. They live their lives really big because they just re realize how freaking big life is on this planet. Have you ever found within business, and in maybe not just Black Diamond, but the, your fellows in the outdoor industry or, or greater, you know, that push, you know, we can't sort of spend money on, on these efforts. You know, we can't affect the bottom line. You know, the, the, the climate debate is really about that. We, it, we know it's happening. It's too expensive to stop it. Um, you know, do you ever find, have you run into that personally within Black Diamond or, you know, what are the arguments you have to have with people to try to convince them otherwise of, of this investment in the future kind of a thing? Because I just really feel like when these environmental issues run up against economics, that's always the argument. 
yeah, sure, but you know, we'll lose jobs or we'll, you know, the we'll lose jobs thing is just like the big slap that everybody wants to administer on any environmental movement. So, you know, what, how do you sort of deal with that in terms of um, the way you're thinking and the way you're talking to sort of industry leaders? Yeah, there, there, there's many perspectives I try to approach that on. And I should begin by saying, you know, it's, it's in many ways, I'm a climber. I'm an alpinist, first and foremost. And like many of my, my, my peers and members of my tribe, I would say that my intelligence does make me a, a pessimist on all these issues. But like, because I'm a climber, my will makes me an optimist. And it is that uh, belief, as I shared earlier, that optimistic expectation, the belief that tomorrow's got to be a better day than today. That's what keeps you going. And you can never give up. You have to keep fighting. And I do believe, ultimately, I don't know, sort of an existential belief that if you keep fighting and keep pushing, ultimately, you will win. You can win. And you should never surrender. And to this regard, so relative to, um, say, BD and what we do, what we can do, and I, I, I see others doing this, it's like, there's limits to what we can do for sure. I mean, it's, but it, it's always looking at that honestly and putting as much thought and attention to the question of, are we really sure we can't put the solar panels on the top of the building? Why not? What is the trade-offs? When are we going to do it? When will we make that commitment? Um as individuals, there's a lot more we can do than we often give ourselves credit for. We're copping out. It's just you want to put the attention to it. Can you? You really can't put those LED bulbs in your house. How expensive are they? What did you just spend for your Starbucks? You want to sacrifice one day a week at Starbucks? I mean, it's I'm, it's a myriad of little things that you yourself can do, and can you as an individual constantly be contacting your elected officials? Majority of people never do, right. but speak up so they can be heard because it really does make a difference. Most people can't believe it does, but it really does. Going to protest really does make a difference. Um, and then this jobs issue, it is a total crutch, and it is so um, usually insincere by those who present it, um, and they know that. But it's we can't afford to lose the jobs. Well, you know what? <laughs> BlackBerry probably said to the people of Canada, we can't afford to lose these jobs either. But they had a lame product, and it was no longer the right product, and everybody's using an iPhone. And the the point I'm making here is that technologies change, and in what we've learned in private enterprise, nobody's protecting Black Diamond from Petzl or Mertolius or Aderid, um, whatever. And it's that we are constantly evolving ourselves as a business in order to remain relevant, competitive, and to do things that are appropriate for our community. And likewise, that's the role of government. It's to, at times, to understand what the externalities are of cost of things that are occurring in the free market that the whole society is paying for. And when somebody comes from a coal mining state and says, we're going to lose a lot of jobs over this, I will say for that individual, he is or she is absolutely right. They will. And my heart goes out to the people of BlackBerry, because there's a lot of people who have lost their jobs, and I've lost several employees to Apple, and I salute them for doing a great job. And my heart goes out to those coal miners in Kentucky and Utah who may be losing their jobs. But you know what? Utah's booming, not because of coal mining, but because of the open space 
And I was just visiting with the head guy from Adobe in Utah County, 1400, super well-paid, young, high-tech, knowledge-based, creative class people. And their recruiting video is rock climbing, mountain biking, mountaineering, trail running, canyoneering, all of that. And then the views you get out of their facility, beautiful views of Mount Tipanogos with some of the best backcountry skiing on the planet. And my point here is, and what I'm always telling legislators is, in private enterprise, we make decisions on where to invest because you can't invest everywhere. And if you do, you'd be nothing to no one and you'll be nowhere and you go bankrupt. And for our public leaders to say, I can't afford to alienate coal mining, we're going to lose jobs, well, then what you're telling the up-and-coming industry, the future of this state, what's really the golden years for the state of Utah is to be thinking about our natural environments, our public lands from the perspective of recreation. Some of it's developed, some of it undeveloped. And that is what's going to lure the Adobes and the Goldman Sachs and the Beatties and other people here because outdoor recreation, access to some of this amazing climbing, canyoneering, uh, river running, that's what people want. And if you fuck it all up with mm-hmm. mining and fouling the air, which they're doing right now, um, tar sands in, in southern Utah that use up all the water that we don't have, you will mortgage the future, and there will be no future. You'll be like that Aryan Sea in the Soviet Union that everybody looks at National Geographic with these big rusting hulks of fishing boats in a lake that disappeared 20 years ago that was a vibrant source of the economy and it's mm-hmm. gone. And so those are the arguments I give people. And you know, and, and some of the times what I hear back is that, you know, from the governor I went to this comment of um well, you know, if we don't approve this oil drilling project by Deso Canyon, which is the start of one of the best rivers in Utah, how many jobs are I mean, if we approve it, you're telling me it's gonna be bad for them, how many jobs are you gonna lose? And you know, my comeback on that is it's a lot like cancer. If you could tell somebody which cigarette is going to give somebody throat cancer, that's the cigarette they're quit smoking. But you can't tell them that. So I can't tell you which which project you're going to prove is going to ruin it. But by the time you've ruined it, there's no coming back. Right. You've got to have a more enlightened attitude than that. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the only thing I'd add is I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to formulate my thought here, but it's that for your listeners who are all obviously if they're listening – they're avid climbers, and if you're a climber and you're listening, you're a very special person. You're in control of your life. You've got discipline. You live big. You live for your dreams, and you make them happen. And it's incumbent upon you not only to take a big role in fighting for the preservation of your local climbing areas and supporting your local access group, but also just the future of this incredible planet. It's incumbent upon you to be a citizen and make a difference like you are in your personal life. Think a little bit bigger and make a difference for the community, the planet, um, and for society. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Peter, for coming in and sitting down, coming to my crummy hotel room uh, at Salt Lake City, spending a lot of time with me. I mean, we, we went over. I'm going to get you back on time, but it, it shouldn't be a problem. And just thinking about like this, this optimism, this looking forward. I mean, you know, you just had a birthday, just turned 60. Had a great party, from what I understand. Knocked something off your bucket list up in the up in the Tetons, you know. So I hope hoping that with these fights that are ahead of you with with conservation and everything else, that you're you're still thinking that that same way in your own life, in terms of looking forward and and uh, looking forward to some other achievements. 
Thanks, Chris. And what I'll say is, obviously, I'm not as bald as I was at one time, but I'm still reasonably fit and vibrant. And my passion and energy has never been higher, and my optimism is as high as it's ever been. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Peter. Chris, thank you. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Ah, what trouble? 